Boston Grove. A special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Grove's alumni, Mr. Marco Allen. Nice to see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This show is created to give a voice to former pro players and personalities, allowing them to share some of the greatest stories this game has to tell. So let's take a trip to the heart of the classic hockey universe and celebrate the history of the game with the select few who actually lived it. Goaltender Dennis Herron is our guest on episode 61 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast. From 1972 to 1986, Dennis played 14 NHL seasons, which included three stops with the Pittsburgh Penguins, a trial-by-fire stint with the expansion Kansas City Scouts, and three solid campaigns in Montreal, where he won both the Vesna and Jennings League trophies. We cover a lot of ground with Dennis, and he tells great stories about former teammates, coaches, and GMs. Dennis also reveals which player was, in his words, the most talented player by far he's ever played with. And just a hint, it's not Mario Lemieux or Guy Lafleur. We greatly appreciate all of you who have subscribed, rated, and reviewed the PHA podcast on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. You have helped make the show more visible to fans across the world. In fact, we are now ranked among the top hockey podcasts in the U.S. and Canada. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show. We greatly appreciate your support. Remember, home base for the show is ProHockeyAlumni.org. Reach out anytime with comments or suggestions. The Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is joined with NHL alumni Tom Laidlaw, Frank Simonetti, and Ken Hodge Jr. in support of the Warrior for Life Fund and the Navy SEALs Foundation. Through the game of hockey, the Warrior for Life Fund supports our warriors by providing programs and infrastructure that helps military families from all service branches cope with the unique challenges of combat, extended deployments, disabilities, and the long-lasting effects of war. The Warrior for Life Fund honors the history and heritage of military service and those who have unselfishly given the ultimate sacrifice please visit warriorforlifefund.org for more information. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Dennis Herron. Well, it's a real pleasure to have on the show today one of the great NHL goaltenders of the 1970s and 80s, three times with the Pittsburgh Penguins, also a Vesna Trophy winner, a Jennings Trophy winner, and a stalwart goaltender with the expansion Kansas City Scouts. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's Dennis Heron. Dennis, thanks so much for being with us today. Pleasure to be on. Dennis, growing up in Chambly, Quebec, I was curious if you were a Montreal Canadian fan and if you patterned yourself perhaps as a youngster after some of the great Canadian goaltenders like a Jacques Plante or a Gump Worsley. Uh, definitely when you grow up, uh, let's say Montreal, when the suburb of Montreal, you always have the uh, Montreal Canadian, especially uh, with my family, we're a big uh, uh, hockey fan family, and um, uh, every Saturday night we're watching uh, hockey and TV, and uh, definitely Montreal Canadian was uh, definitely the number one in our in our family, and uh, Jean-Paul was 
pretty much somebody I was looking uh, into definitely because uh, I was a gold vendor very early age, and uh, I was trying to, let's say, copy somebody, and I think I was trying to do this for Joe Plant. Not not that many youngsters decide to be a goaltender right off the bat. You know, I talked to Phil Meir recently, who kind of was talked into it at an older age. Uh, what was your fascination with goaltending at a young age? What about it uh, attracted you to being a, a goaltender? Well, that's a, <laughs> it's not a question of attraction. It's right. a question. I came from a very, very small town in the suburb of Montreal called Chambre, Quebec, and uh, uh, my dad was a goaltender, and uh, he was a coach also. And in Chambly, we had two teams. Uh, and also, in the next city besides Chambly was Port Chambly, who had two teams also, and one team in the Richelieu. And uh, because we came from a very, very small town, we were probably uh, 3,000 people, let's say, in uh, in the late 50s, mm-hmm. uh, didn't have enough uh, people to play goal or but my dad said, you're going to be a goaltender. And uh, I started playing pretty much at the age of four or five years old with kids at 10 to 12 years old. And uh, that's the way I became a goaltender. Well, you obviously succeed at it. I guess it's good to have a father as a coach, too, to help you along. And you end up with Trois-Rivières in junior hockey in the Quebec League. And that was kind of almost unofficially... Had a relationship with the Toronto Maple Leafs at the time. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that junior hockey experience. How you ended up there, and uh, just talk about that experience in general, uh, playing junior hockey in Quebec. Well, uh, what happened in Rivers uh, when I was approximately what uh, fifteen years old? Let's say in uh, April of uh, I. Resume. It had to be 1966 or 67. Uh, a gentleman from my hometown came to to me, my brother, and two or three other guys, and said, uh, "I have a friend of mine who is uh, the coach in Trevers, and if you want to go practice with the junior team, they are going to start the playoff very soon and uh, give you a chance." Mm-hmm. And uh, we went and uh, we practiced. Uh, we had two practice with the junior junior A team. Uh, the summer passed, and uh, I presume at the, in August I received a letter from Travers and uh, asking me if I want to come down for training camp uh, to try with the junior junior A team. And uh, I was the only one who got to receive a letter. And uh, by then, my pa- my dad had passed away and everything. My mm-hmm. mom said, well, try it and see what happened. Like, I went to three rivers, uh, didn't make the team, but the team asked me if uh, I want to be their third goaltender. And right beside three rivers is a small city called Cap de la Malen. It's a junior B team, and they said, we're going to put you there, and we'll call you up once in a while during the season 
to give you some experience. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I started there. Well, you have a strong junior career, which leads to you being selected in the third round of the National Hockey League draft, uh, 1972 NHL draft by the Pittsburgh Penguins. And you actually have a rare distinction because you go to training camp with the Penguins in 1972. You have a strong camp and actually make the team as a rookie, which is unheard of for a goaltender. And you had a strong start with a pair of shutouts, uh, one against the Islanders, one against Vancouver. But taking it back to the training camp, Dennis, you're a young guy. The Penguins have a veteran team. I believe Red Kelly was coaching at that point. You got a lot of veterans, Brian Hextalls and the Sillaps, Lowell McDonald, guys like that, Ron Stackhouse. So what was that first camp like for a young guy like yourself, especially as a goaltender? Well, it, it was interesting because I did not speak English also. You had a guy by Jean Pernobo who was there, and pretty much Jean Pernobo was telling me uh, everything what to do because I didn't I didn't understand English or speak English at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the first two weeks, pretty much Jean Pernobo was my <laughs> my guys that uh, everything the coach said or I was following him like. Uh, uh, very, very closely because right. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't understand what the coach was saying or what we had to do and everything. Right. But on the other hand, that helped me because I did just concentrate on my hockey. And uh, don't forget at that point, too, when I turned pro, I weighed pretty much 145 pounds <laughs> only. Right. And uh, and I was fast, and that that helped me a little bit. Well, we always you're one of those rare individuals who had to work on gaining weight rather than losing it, and we'll get into that in a minute too. But as I said, you had that strong start with Pittsburgh. They decide that you need some more experience. You end up in of all places, Salt Lake City for a little while in the Western League, and of course uh, here and there in in Hershey. But eventually you get traded to the expansion Kansas City Scouts, and that's an opportunity for you. I guess it depends on how you look at it. Opportunity for you to really establish yourself as a full-time goaltender the National Hockey League. On the other hand, it's a team that's an expansion team and maybe a little bit short on talent at that point. What was your reaction on getting traded to the Scouts, and what was that experience like playing for a team that uh, struggled to win games? Well, uh, if it, what happened, that was my third year that I was with, uh, let's say, Pittsburgh, and they, they had sent me to Hershey, uh, to and I barely played in Hershey also because I think I was not, I was no longer figuring in their, their plan in Pittsburgh. And uh, the two goalie, uh, well, a goalie in Pittsburgh got hurt, and they, they came to see me. They said, then you have to go up to Pittsburgh because uh, I think it was Jimmy Rutherford or somebody got hurt. And uh, I went down to Pittsburgh, and uh, the first game that we played, we were playing in Pittsburgh, and I was the backup goalie. And I think the second game, we went to Atlanta, and the coach came to see me and said, uh, you're going to play tonight. That's like I said, fine. Like I said, gee, that's the time for me to shine because, 
definitely it's it's a break mm-hmm. for me uh did the warm up and everything and right after the warm up uh coach came to me and said uh we decided you're not going to play <laughs> uh got really upset uh but what else are you going to do like i got sit on the bench uh, pretty much everybody in the in the stand, uh, referee, everybody knew that the trade was made. That's the reason why I was I didn't play. And uh, even my wife, who was at Montreal at that time, uh, find out before I <laughs> before I find out myself. Oh. Because the game finished at ten o'clock, and uh, I think the announcement in Montreal and the TV was at uh, nine thirty. Wow. And right after the game, the coach came to me and he said, the reason you didn't play because you got traded to Kansas City. Uh, got uh, to uh, Kansas City. Uh, Sid Abel was the general manager, and I think at that time he was not there. Uh, and Baz Bastien was there as the Aston GM. Like I met with Baz Bastien, walking. Mr. Bastien said to me, he said, he said, I lost a very, very good goalie uh, as Michel Plas. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, the, reason, the only reason I can, uh, I lost him because he said, I cannot afford him. You are pretty cheap, and we decide to go with you, and hopefully you're going to do the job. <laughs> okay, and go get dressed and go play. <laughs> like, uh, that's what, uh, that's the, the story when I got <laughs> to, to Kansas City. Quite a quite a motivational speech there by Baz Bastine. Who will, uh, That's right. But nonetheless, you do take advantage of this opportunity. I had a conversation recently with Gary Smith, and we talked about his days playing with the Oakland Seals, and he would get so discouraged at the end of a season. He would face so many shots, there'd be so many losses. He almost, as he said to me, he almost had a nervous breakdown after one season. My question for you, Dennis. You had a stretch there where they think the team won one out of 44 games. You're playing well. I mean, you lead the league in saves. You're playing a lot. You play 60 games. Is it difficult under those circumstances to keep your focus when you go on a road trip, let's say, and you've got you know, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, whatever, and you're, you're losing consistently? Is it difficult for a goaltender to keep uh, focused each, each night, or is that not a problem for you? It was not a problem for me. Uh, for me, I saw this as a chance to prove myself. Uh, lots of shots uh, and pick up experience. And I said to myself, I said, well, see where that's going to get me. And uh, definitely uh, it was uh, experience. Uh, also, uh my coach at that point, uh, pretty much, I was playing the game. He didn't want me to practice because oh. uh, because I was playing so many games. Like I, when I I used to practice, I used to practice pretty much uh, half an hour a day, forty five minutes the most, compared to an hour and a half for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Like uh, just to keep up with the resting and and just keep myself sharp enough just for the game. And that's the way I, I play. Uh, definitely, for me, was a, a great advantage to play in Kansas City uh, because I picked up so much experience and helped me with my career. 
Sure did. Now, one of the things we talked about earlier is that you had playing all those games and being relatively thin to begin with. As I recall, and I think it was mentioned in the Kansas City Scouts book, you tried various methods of keeping weight on. And one of them was, I think you were drinking a lot of protein shakes at the time, which ended up creating some complications for you. Is that true? And if so, could you tell me about that? Yeah, is what happened is uh, one of my uh, best buddies when I been in the city was Gary Crotto. And Gary Crotto was a big boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, lifting weight and everything. And Gary was very, very strong and, and pushing himself all the time. Like during the summer, me and him, we stay in Kansas City. And what we did, we tra- I trained with him. And he tried to, for me, he said, let's try to, for you to gain weight a little bit. But we work out uh, pretty much uh, four or five hours a day. Wow. Running, lifting weights, uh, all kinds of stuff, uh, bicycling, uh, playing tennis, everything, uh, almost every day. So what happened, too, in Kansas City, if you know the weather, it's pretty much uh, 90 to 100 degrees during the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, by pushing ourselves, by, by especially me, because I was drinking not one milkshake. I was drinking pretty much 10 blender a day <laughs> of milkshake. And what, what that caused, that caused a, uh, too much calcium in my body. Mm-hmm. And was I developed cal- uh, kidney stone that way. Oh, that's painful. Yeah. And uh, the, that was the story about the milkshake and uh, <laughs> the, the way that I tried to gain weight. Uh, eventually, uh, I got stronger that way also. But uh, it was it was okay. It's uh, just uh, I, I drink too many milkshakes, that's all. All right. Well, you with training, listening to your training regimen with Gary Crotto, you guys were way ahead of your time with your weightlifting, running, and et cetera. So uh, that certainly helped you. Now, when the scouts fall in seventy at the end of the seventy five seventy six season, they move to Colorado. Uh, you decide right. you decide not to, and you end up back in the Steel City with the Penguins. Can you tell me how that all transpired? Well, Kansas uh, City uh, went to Colorado. I don't remember the GM who was in Colorado at that time. But I received a phone call at the end. They said to me, they said, uh, Danny, we're not interested in your service. Uh, you're a free agent. You could go anywhere you want to go. And uh, that's the way. And uh, when I talked to my agent, uh, my agent said, well, it's, uh, you have the choice to go to Vancouver or to go to, back to Pittsburgh. And because I knew the city in Pittsburgh, uh, like the adaptation for my family, my wife and, and uh, the kids, mm-hmm. uh was going to be a lot more easy if I go back to Pittsburgh. And uh, Bas Bassin was there also as the assistant GM. Uh, I decided to go back to Pittsburgh. That's the way. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm surprised. You know, Colorado always had challenges with their goaltending, 
and I'm surprised it didn't take the opportunity to bring you along. You had such a, a strong 75-76 season with Kansas City, and I'm surprised they didn't, but their loss was the Penguins' gain. Again, you return to Pittsburgh. You're sharing duties uh, in 76 and 7 with Dunk Wilson. Kind of an interesting character. I don't know much about him. What was it like uh, splitting time with Dunk? What type of guy was he? But Dunk gets to, uh, to Pittsburgh, really, is what happened uh, right, uh, right at the beginning of the season. Uh, I got injured. I broke my arm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got hit by a skate right in my arm, and I broke my arm. Like uh, Pittsburgh was desperate to uh, to get a goalie, and I presume Dunk was playing in New York. And uh, I think they made a trade for him. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, anyway, Dunk Wilson came to Pittsburgh and played very, very, very well for Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, he's a different character, great <laughs> nice. gentleman, uh, and uh, Dunk, uh, like I said, played very, very well. I got along very, very well with Dunk. Uh, on the road, he was my roommate. And uh, what we decide, I think at that point, Kenny Schinkel was our coach. Yeah. And uh, I came back uh, mid-December, I presume. And we start to split game, but Dunk one, me and one, and we start playing like that. And I start playing very, very well, and Dunk was playing very, very well. Well, uh, since I was getting along very well with Dunk, we he played well against some team, and I played well against some team. But we sat together, made our schedule, let's say from January 1st all the way down to the end of the season and said and present that to our coach and said we like to play those games he played well against some some of the team and I play well and Mr. Shinko said fine if you like to go like that that's fine with me wow that's great and we went we went until pretty much until March like that and Don got got hurt and uh uh, I finished the season playing pretty much every game there. And uh, that was my experience with Dunk Wilson. Well, you posted a stellar 2.94 goals against average. And the next year, you become the certified number one goaltender playing 60 games with the Penguins. And some interesting teammates that you had there. And you had a veteran team, of course. I wanted to ask you about a, a few of them. Number one was a very underrated defenseman in those days named Dave Burrows. Can you tell the fans a little bit about Dave and what he brought to the Penguins team? Well, uh, Dave Burrows, in these days, it, it, uh, hockey was still a bit different. And uh, definitely with Dave Burrows in front of you, uh, goaltender uh, during this uh Hera, the 70 and 80, uh, play very, very well or communicate very, very well with your defensemen. And you practice and you said, okay, if we have a situation uh, uh, two on three, uh, you do this, you do that, or I go here and you go there. With David Burrow, you know that the guys was not going to pass David Burrow. 
Mm-hmm. It was so easy to play, to be the goalie with David Burrow in front of you, that you know exactly what to do. Uh, you know the guy was not going to pass by David Burrow. Like most of the time, the guys had to shoot. or And if you're ready, it was very, very simple. But David Burrow was pretty much one of the best defensemen I played for in my career. Right. He was underappreciated. And I think one other defenseman who sometimes the fans were impatient with but could really move the puck, and he was a big guy, but he wasn't overly physical, was Ron Stackhouse. Right. What's your recollection of, of Ron as a player? You know, Ron Stackhouse, he pretty much exactly the same thing. Uh, a little bit uh, a little bit different than Davey Burrow. Uh, but with Ron Stackhouse, was a big boy, and definitely nobody was in front of him, uh, in front of the net. Mm-hmm. And that was helping me also. Uh, it was a little different style of the, from, from Davey Burrow, but definitely... Uh, Having those two guys with in my team, it make my job a lot more easy. No question. Now, there are two guys I want to ask you about who were very colorful characters in hockey. I'd love to know your thoughts of them as teammates. And the first of all was the uh, left-wing Brian Spinner Spencer. Of course, he's no longer right. with us, but you know, quite a, a colorful character. Can you tell us a little bit about Spinner Spencer? Uh, Brian, he was a, really a guy that worked very, very hard. Uh, tell you, if you have a guy like that in your in your team, and you were struggling a little bit uh, when Spinner went on the ice, uh, he tried to shake up things and uh, have your teammate. Uh, go and say, okay, if Spinner can do that, we can do that. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it was good that way. Uh, Spinner was not a guy that was going to score 50 goals, but he had a role to play in the, in the team. And uh, definitely, uh, it was a pretty good guy to have a new team. And one other player I wanted to ask you about, when you talk about guys who have a role, of course, in that era, the most feared enforcer would be Dave the Hammer Schultz. Who ends up in Pittsburgh, and what impact did it have? What, did his arrival have on the team? I mean, what, did it allow the uh, skill guys to play a little bit, a little bit more freely with with him on the ice? And what type of impact did Dave Schultz had at that point of his career with the Pittsburgh Penguins? Well, definitely, uh, when David came to, to Pittsburgh, it was uh, a, a little bit later on his career. But definitely have uh, Schulte on, on our team uh, was a great asset, like you said, uh, help other, other player to, let's say, play a little bit more freely because they know if something happened, uh, show was there to defend them. And I think uh, that helped us uh, quite a bit. Uh, and David was a great gentleman also. Like it's, uh, it was a, a great asset to our team, definitely. I talked most recently to Dennis Marouk, and one of the, you know, the Penguins missed the playoffs of this year in 77-78, as did the Cleveland Barons. Now he talks about how, how proud he was to play in the World Championships 
And as I, as I was talking with him, as a fan, and I, I grew up in New England, outside of Boston, you didn't get a lot of coverage of those, the postseason uh, world championships and some of the greatest players in the world, the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia. And, of course, you represent Canada in 1978 in a bronze medal team. Talk a little bit about that experience and the pride of playing for your country. Well, it definitely playing for your country is completely, completely different. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a little different. And also, uh, you try to, to win that goal, goal medal because really, if you win that goal medal, you, you are the best team in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we play, I was, uh, I presume at that time was, uh, Daniel Bouchard was, uh, the goalie with me. Like we play, uh, one game here, one game there. And, uh, with the teammate that we had pretty much was like a all-star team that you play with. And those players, even if we didn't practice that much together, uh, I tell you right now to have those, those players in front of you. Uh, was was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Czech Republic, uh, Russia had very very good team, uh, but uh, Canada was pretty awesome also. And uh, uh, definitely, uh, we won the bronze medal, but we, we could have won either way and win the the gold medal. Uh, we were just uh, a few few bad luck or a few bad break here and there, but mm-hmm. overall. We did play very, very well. Either way, a great experience. And you come back in 78-79 with another strong season, playing 56 games. I was curious now, in your second time in Pittsburgh, now I I lived in Pittsburgh for five years or so in the mid-'90s when I worked with the Penguins. But I was curious, at that time, hockey in Pittsburgh was, the fans were great, they had a good core, but still there was some financial instability with the team here and there. And my question is, what was the hockey scene like in Pittsburgh then compared to what it would be now? Uh, completely, completely different. Uh, definitely uh, when you play uh, for the Pittsburgh Penguins in the, let's say in the 70s and mid 80s, uh, pretty much you could do anything uh, uh, they were talking football or baseball quite a bit. Uh, hockey was the third sport in Pittsburgh. Uh, now, <laughs> hockey is the number one sport in Pittsburgh, right. and you're talking football and baseball after. I guess it, it makes a big difference, and you're talking the Mario Lemieux era, and and uh, I think Mario changed the whole concept of hockey for the Pittsburgh fan, and uh, that's that has been like that since he got there in 1986. Right. Yeah, it was 84, and the impact he had as a player and then as an owner all these years yeah. later is it probably never has happened before in sports to have that impact for that long. But as I said, in 78-79, the Penguins are an improved team. You have another strong year, and then it's off to the playoffs, and... You're playing a, a good Buffalo Sabres team in round one, those three-game series they used to have. It's a team with a lot of firepower. In the end, the Penguins prevail in game three, an overtime goal by George Ferguson. Had to be a, right. had to be a fun experience for you uh, playing in a high-intensity series like this and coming out on top. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, that was probably the best area we play in the playoffs. Uh, uh, Buffalo uh, were the underdog, uh, pretty much a uh, hundred to one. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I, like I said before, I played well against some of the team, and uh, Buffalo was one of the team I played very very well, especially in Buffalo. I don't know if it's because the ring was a little bit smaller than a, a, any other ring in the league, but uh, I play quite well during that, that series. And uh, finally, at the end, George came up and, uh, and uh, uh, had a goal in overtime, and uh, that was quite a, quite a joy, really. Well, things are going real well for you in Pittsburgh, and things are getting better for the team. So wouldn't you know you get traded? But you, you don't get traded to just any team. You get traded to the hometown Montreal Canadiens just off of four Stanley Cups. How did you hear about that trade? It, it had to be a surprise to you. Uh, it definitely was a surprise. Uh, and... Uh... I'm a guy that is not very emotional when it comes down to hockey. It, for me, it's a, it was, okay, I play hockey, I play net, and uh, I'm going to do the best I can. And uh, I got traded to Montreal, and uh, I find out really what's playing for, let's say, Pittsburgh or Kansas City versus playing for Montreal because – in Montreal, it was like uh, no private life because <laughs> everybody knows you. You cannot go shopping with your wife because everybody will stop you. Uh, lots of pressure because every fan are your coach. <laughs> uh, it was completely different. It had to different, be. Different. And it also had to be a lot of pressure too because Ken Dryden had retired of course in the off season so did Jacques Lemaire and Yvonne Cornoyer things really changed a lot in Montreal so for yourself coming in as you said you're under the microscope one thing that's interesting a little piece of trivia for our fans is Guy Lafleur scored 50 goals six times in his career and three times he had the 50th against Dennis Herron we couldn't do it that year in 79 because you were teammates can you talk a little bit about Guy Lafleur, number ten of the Montreal Canadiens? Well, definitely Guy Lafleur was uh, pretty much uh, one of the best players in the league. Uh, like I said, and I remember pretty well, uh, reporters were asking me how I feel about Guy Lafleur scoring his third time fifty goal. And like I said to everybody, it's not my fault if he's waiting for me to get in town to score his <laughs> 50 goals. <laughs> but uh, I tried to stop him as much as I could. And uh, uh, finally, he definitely scored his goal. But uh, that was uh, it's, 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 uh, a great record for him. And I'm proud that he scored against me because definitely my name will be in the books for that. <laughs> right. Well, you were part of a great company who were uh, gave up a goal to Guy Lafleur, of course, which is pretty much everybody who played. And one other guy who you have a unique perspective on is Pierre LaRouche, who you had a chance to see 
at three different stages of his career that you saw him, you know, towards the beginning, uh, a little bit as an opponent with Kansas City. You saw him as a teammate in Pittsburgh, and then, of course, in Montreal. And that first year at the Canadians, he's a 50-goal scorer. Uh, kind of an interesting guy as well, but uh, what are your recollections of Pierre LaRouche? Pierre LaRouche, okay. And I was, uh, said that when I was playing, and I will say that again. Pierre LaRouche, talent-wise, was probably the most talented hockey player that I ever saw playing in NHL. Wow. So much talent. It was incredible. Uh, the difference is that Pierre uh, was a, a non non talent. He, he took hockey not as seriously as as a Gretzky, who uh, didn't work as hard as as uh, a Leffler or Gretzky mm-hmm. or some of, of the other player. But talent wise, Pierre Rouge had the most talent that I ever saw on as a hockey player. Wow, that's a, that's an amazing statement from a guy who's seen uh, pretty much everybody in that generation. For yourself, Dennis, you win the Vesna uh, next year, the Jennings Trophy in your three years in Montreal. Your first year, you lead the league in save percentage. In your third year in Montreal, you lead the league in save percentage and goals against average. The challenge in Montreal may have been for you. Now, it, it, was, it was Rick Wamsley, Richard Savinier, Bunny LaRock. Was it frustrating having three goalies consistently in the mix, whereas in Pittsburgh and KC you were able to kind of run with it, play fifty or sixty games? Was that a was that a challenge for you to play among two uh, two other goalies? Well, is what happened is uh, the first year that I was in Montreal, uh, right at the beginning of the year, uh, I broke my collarbone. Uh, I presume in late October. And Bunny Larak uh, came in and played, and uh, Bunny didn't play as well as uh, people were expecting. Uh, I came back in uh, mid-December, I presume, or late December, and I started playing quite well. Uh, I think I lost two games out of 32. And uh, that helped me adjust the Montreal style and everything. Mm-hmm. The following year, they traded uh, Bunny Larac, and all of a sudden, they decided at train camp to have two other goalies uh, as a backup also. Uh, like it's Dennis Aaron, uh, Richard Sabine, or Rick Wamsley. And we just go back and forth and back and forth and... Uh, uh, it was a little bit harder to adjust mm-hmm. and uh, not playing as much also uh, and different style and everything. Okay. That is, uh, was an adjustment, and it was a bit harder for me that way, definitely. Well, you had a tremendous amount of personal success with Montreal, and, of course, you get traded back to Pittsburgh for the third time, you're a Pittsburgh Penguin. So I guess that's good. You're familiar with the area and you're familiar with uh, your your team. What was your what was your emotion like getting traded from Montreal to Pittsburgh, a team that was really starting to struggle at that point? Well, I definitely was uh, was quite nice to when they announced to me 
and I was at training camp. Uh, I had no no idea. I was at training camp in Montreal, and I was on uh, the general manager came to me. He said, "Denny, we just trade you to back to Pittsburgh." And the only condition I had to sign a contract in Montreal before I went to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. That was the condition that uh, the trade was going to happen because Pittsburgh didn't want to negotiate a contract with me. Like I said, fine, no problem. Like uh, my my agent, myself, will sit down and negotiate a contract with Montreal. And I went to uh, to Pittsburgh and uh, play. Like you said, it was easy because I knew the city, uh, I knew the player, I knew quite a bit of people. Like it, it was a, a easy adjustment to get trade to Pittsburgh for the third time. And your head coach there is Ed Johnston, of course, longtime National Hockey League goaltender, assistant coach, a good friend of mine who uh, spends a lot of time up here in New England, Mike Corrigan. But the team is in the rebuilding mode, so you're kind of back into a situation you were early in your career. You're seeing a lot of shots, you know, a little bit of a loose, uh, loose defensive approach to the team. And that changes, as you noted earlier in the conversation, in 1984, when Mario Lemieux joins the Pittsburgh Penguins. So you've got a unique perspective of Mario. You're a French-Canadian uh, player, uh, as is he, of course. He comes into training camp, and I was curious about your observations of him as an 18-year-old player. Well, definitely uh, Mario came in, and with the strikes, first of all, uh, he, he's a big man. Like it's, uh, he, when you saw him coming, uh, for the first time, definitely you know it was Mario Lemieux. Right. Uh, with Mario, it, it, what happened is uh, it was an adjustment for him also to go from Tsunarake to the NHL. Uh, I could say for probably, it took him probably two or three months to adjust to the NHL. But when the adjustment was made, Watch out! <laughs> right. He was he was going to be the player, and definitely he proved that he was the player for in the league and also in Pittsburgh. So in your last year, you play a little bit for Pittsburgh. You play uh, most of your games in Baltimore, as did so many past and future Penguins. I just want to get your memories, if you can think back to one of your teammates that a lot of our fans are, are familiar with from the movie Slapshot, Steve Carlson. And do you recall Steve as a player and as a teammate? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Steve was uh, what you saw in Slapshot and what you see Steve as a player. It's completely different, but definitely a great gentleman, uh, great guys, lots of fun, good hockey player, good, very, very good leader uh, as a team. And uh, definitely uh, Baltimore, uh he made it happen there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, definitely, the uh, Steve was. I, if I'm not sure, I, I think he was our captain, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, definitely, it was a good leader there. Dennis, you've at this point had a successful 14-year career that comes from an end in '85, '86. Are you ready to retire at that point? And what was the adjustment like? Now you spent a lot of time in hotels as a hockey player. You end up in that industry, but 
what is it like that first year, 1986, out of hockey for the first time and forever in your, your adult life and making that transition to uh, non-hockey life? But it's, it's what happened is uh, after uh, this, that year, that I played uh, from January until April in, in Baltimore. After that, uh, Pittsburgh uh, said to me, uh, we are thinking to resign you, and uh, but that's not going to happen until late summer of... Uh, of uh, that year that was after the season like mm-hmm. i said fine i said I, w- I will wait and we'll go from there and i think they pick up some goalie at the draft at the draft and uh uh came down august they came to me and they said uh we did, as a team we made a decision not to resign you and thank you very much and because it was august and most of the team had made thing happened or made uh, draft choice or uh, it was too late for me to to find a job with somebody mm-hmm. like I decided uh, as a, with my wife as a family uh, to retire and uh, that's what we did that year so that time period uh, after you retire, like I, I think you were in the you were you're in the auto sales business for a little bit, but you end up uh, having a great career in the uh, hotel and, and tourist industry. Can you talk a little bit about perhaps the the skills and the discipline that you had to have to play major league hockey and how that transferred over to a successful career off the ice? Well, definitely, when you're a hockey player, you are very disciplined, and and you have to work very, very hard at it. And uh, my first year uh, in the hotel business, uh, I came to uh, to West Palm Beach area. A gentleman that uh, from Pittsburgh who was a general manager of the Hyatt Hotel in Pittsburgh at that time had asked me to go in the hotel business during the, uh, one summer and I told him because I was playing hockey uh, not I was not going to think about another job until I retired from hockey and I retired from hockey and uh, he finally got in touch with me uh, offered me a job in West Palm Beach, Florida uh, when came here uh, as the let's say, 34, 25-year-old gentleman and to a new business that pretty much don't know very much about. Uh, I stay all my life in a hotel, but (laughs) never on the other side of, of, uh, uh, on the other side. And all of a sudden, uh, a gentleman who was uh, my boss as a director of was only 21 years old, Wow, and I was thirty-four years old. But as a person, it was because I knew the management company, I knew all the people at high end. He was afraid a little bit of his his job, mm-hmm. and what he said, he said, "You want to learn the job?" He said, 
you're going to make some phone calls and you're going to work hard at it and that's the way you're going to learn. I said, fine, that's no problem. When I showed up for my first day uh, in my office, I had bucks from from the all the way down to the ceiling full, <laughs> full of files. And those files were people that stay at our hotel for the previous 30 years. Wow. And he said, you're going to call everybody and we're going to ask them to see if they, they want to come to our hotel. And that's the way I learned the hotel business. I called people, they were dead for 10 years. Right. I call and and learn the business that way. And I learned if you want the business, you have to go after the business and you have to call. And definitely that's the way I learned how to become a better retailer that way. Right. And also as a human being, it's it's humbling. A lot of people don't want to maybe take that step to learn from scratch after having such a successful career. Now, obviously, I'm assuming the money was much less than when you got started. So you're able to persevere. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it takes a lot. Uh, you know, it, it says a lot about a person who's able to uh, to make that step. And, again, you get a, 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 a pile of boxes and a bunch of files, and you just start dialing. And uh, nothing glamorous, but it paid off for you. You've had, you had a heck of a career. I'm curious. Do you still hear from fans? Do fans still send you things to get autographed and things of that nature? Well, oh, yes. I got approximately uh, three to four letters every week uh, to sign autographs. Uh, it's funny because uh, yesterday I just sent one to Czechoslovakia. Uh, a fan that asked, asked me to sign some pictures that they had, and uh, uh, they were from Czechoslovakia. Wow. And wow. yeah, I got them. Uh, another one, I think, uh, two days ago was from San Antonio, Texas. That's great. Well, the fans don't forget. Yeah. And I remember we had a, a celebrity alumni reunion back in the mid-90s with the Penguins. I had a chance to meet you briefly, and I uh, said to myself, he's a great guy. I hope to get a chance to catch up to him. And on today's show, I did, and I'm glad I did. Dennis, thanks so much for spending the time with us. and. We wish you uh, the best of luck going forward, and we really appreciate it. a lot of good information here today. The fans will love it, and uh, really wish you uh, the best of luck going forward. The pleasure is mine. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. Just a reminder to please consider giving the show a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. The link is in the show notes. These ratings and reviews help us become a lot more visible and make the show more accessible to hockey fans everywhere. I personally read all the reviews and greatly appreciate them all. If you have thoughts or suggestions for the show, you can talk to, contact us through our website at ProHockeyAlumni.org or be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at ProHockeyAlumni. Thanks for listening.